The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see, his hand, I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger under the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Can you please be seated. It's a real joy for me to be able to welcome Matt Hain back to Holy Trinity Anglican Church as our preacher this morning. Matt uh, first showed up at Holy Trinity when he was a student at UNC, and I thought something was kind of odd when I saw this kid every week commuting from, from Chapel Hill to church in Raleigh. It was this sign of sort of matured commitment to the church, affection for God's people. And, it, and in that, there was a spark of something. Well, fast forward several years later, Matt has gone to Divinity School at Duke. He's gone through the ordination process, been ordained a deacon and a priest here in the Anglican, uh, here in the Diocese of the Carolinas. And he now serves, now tell me your title at the, at the study center at UNC. Director of Programs and Operations. So. Matt is Director of Programs and Operations at the Christian Study Center at UNC, which is started, which Matt's been a part of since the beginning, it was started by Madison Perry, uh, who also went through uh, our community here to be ordained in the Anglican Church in North America. So this feels like a family reunion, having Matt back this morning to preach for us. Matt is married to Mary Mack, and they have a daughter named Kit, and it's just a joy to have you here with us. Let me pray for Matt as he preaches. Lord God, we thank you uh, for the work you do among us. We thank you for raising up Matt into leadership and ministry uh, in this community and especially at the University of North Carolina. Lord God, speak through him to us this morning that we may know the truth and that we with Thomas might confess my Lord and my God. Amen. All right, well thank you John for that introduction and good morning Holy Trinity. It is a joy to be here and to worship with you all this morning. Next year, 2023, will mark the 60th anniversary of the death of the great C.S. Lewis. When we think about the legacy of Lewis, most of us know him as a keen apologist. We think of an eloquent spokesman for the truths of Christianity. Lewis perhaps did more than any other 20th century figure to gain a public hearing for Christianity in the public square. He translated the gospel story into children's literature in the Chronicles of Narnia. He delivered rousing wartime broadcasts on mere Christianity over the BBC airwaves. And his books have sold north of 200 million copies. Long before Lewis became a lion of the faith, however, he was a very different kind of man. Lewis was a doubter. 
He spent a significant portion of his life actually as a skeptic and as a critic of Christianity. He recounts his circuitous spiritual journey in the book Surprised by Joy, where we see that his ultimate conversion to Christianity was anything but triumphal. Lewis writes, alone in that room in Maudlin College night after night, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I share this because in our gospel text this morning, we encounter another famous skeptic turned believer, and that's the Apostle Thomas. And there's a resonance, I think, in the stories between Lewis and Thomas. If C.S. Lewis was the most reluctant convert in all of England, then Thomas was certainly the most reluctant convert in all of Judea. And as we work our way through the passage this morning, I want us to first look at Thomas's doubt, to first focus on his doubt to see what we might glean from his story about how to grapple with our own doubts. And then secondly, we're going to turn to Thomas's confession of faith to see what it teaches us about the nature of true, authentic faith. So I invite you to pull out the red Bibles from the chair in front of you and open up to John 20. I did not check the page number, but latter half of your Bibles, John 20. And first, let's set the stage for our passage. Thomas has spent three years at this point traversing Judea as one of Jesus's hand-picked closest disciples. And Thomas, I can't stress this enough, he has left everything, everything, his hometown, his family, his vocation, he's left it all to follow this rabbi from Nazareth. And while this is certainly a high cost, we can imagine the consolation that Thomas received in getting a front row seat to all that Jesus said and did his teachings, his healings, his miracles. Thomas has counted the cost and he has cast his lot in life with Jesus. And therefore it's impossible to fathom, I think, the sense of defeat that Thomas must have felt seeing Jesus die an unceremonious death on a cross. Thomas thought, he hoped, that Jesus was the Messiah, God's anointed. So how crushing it must have been to see his life and not triumphantly, but unceremoniously under the curse of Deuteronomy 6.4, cursed be everyone who is hung on a tree. You see, Thomas's doubt, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't emerge from a vacuum. It begins in this storm, the storm of abrupt change of circumstances, the storm of his greatest hopes dashed and his expectations for how his life was gonna go reduced to shambles. I think there's application for us in this, isn't there? It's often relatively smooth sailing in our walk with Jesus and our discipleship when things are going pretty well in life. Certainly there's cost, certainly there's sacrifices, but discipleship tends to go pretty well when things are relatively smooth. But then a major storm crashes upon us out of nowhere. A sudden job loss. A child who turns spiritually wayward and walks away from the faith. A medical diagnosis. Doubt often has its origins in our lives in these sorts of storms. And existential questions confront us, such as, is God, is scripture real when it describes who God is? Is God really who the Bible says he is? Is he really sovereignly in control of my life? And if so, how could he let this happen? Thomas's doubt, it begins in the storm of all storms, but it doesn't stop there. Notice the progression that we'll trace in the passage. Immediately before our passage, Jesus has risen from the tomb victoriously on the third day, and he has appeared to 10 of the disciples. 
and they receive him with great joy. There's just one problem as our passage opens, and it's this, where is Thomas? Where is Thomas to share in this joy? Look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And when you read commentators on this passage, most do not believe this was simply a coincidence of timing. Thomas didn't just so happen to be off on a lunch break when Jesus came back and appeared to the 10 disciples. No, Thomas, he seems to have intentionally separated himself from his brother apostles. Judas betrayed the 12. Thomas appears to have abandoned the 12, like a team member who cleans out his locker in the dead of night and flees the team. Thomas's doubt began earnestly with a storm, but it quickly progresses into the dangerous territory of isolation. Thomas has removed himself from his community, and he's now shunning his friends. He forsakes the Sunday assembly, and he was marked absent from the very first Easter Sunday worship service. Now, it would be easy here to beat up on Thomas, and maybe it sounds like I am, but I don't think Thomas is unique in this, is he? Many of us can recognize this pattern play out in our own lives in different ways at different times. Storms come, doubt or disillusionment with our faith gains a foothold, and rather than exposing that to the light of day, we can keep it hidden internally. We can try to work out our doubts and our frustrations all by our lonesome. And isolation can become a breeding ground for doubt to spread like mold over our faith. Well, what's the antidote to doubt running this course in our lives? Is there another course that we can take when doubt gains a foothold in our lives? Thankfully, there is. And I think scripture gives us a good example of this in Psalm 73. There the psalmist, not David here, but a man named Asaph, is recounting to us a dark night of the soul that he's recently been through. He cries out to God in the psalm, why do the wicked prosper and live at ease while the righteous suffer and live in want? Asaph gives powerful voice to his doubt. He sums it up in verse 13. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. So Asaph, struggling with doubt, he could have kept those doubts restrained to the solitude of his own soul, but he doesn't do this. He charts another course and shows us another way. In verse 16 he writes, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Asaph takes doubt where it belongs. He takes it to the temple, to the assembly of God's people in worship, and there his doubt is reframed. There his circumstances are cast in a different light. There he's reminded of truths that he's prone to forgetting. There his current feelings and circumstances yield to an eternal perspective. Friends, God can stomach our doubts. Sentiments of doubt are inscribed into God's holy word. They're part of the canon. But the right place to take our doubts is to church. It's to community group. It's to coffee with a friend. It's to one of the pastoral staff. It is not to the isolation of our own hearts. It's, it's easier for me to get away with this as a guest preacher, so I'm gonna take the license. But if you're here this morning and you're struggling, first of all, you're in the right place. But if you're struggling in your faith or you have friends who are struggling in their faith, the right place to go is not to withdraw from community. It is to press into community and bring your doubt with you. The church is a, a place to receive those doubts, to receive you and to work through that together. That's the right move here, not to isolate yourself from community. Thomas's doubt, it began with a storm and this led to isolation, but his doubt finds full form in verse 25. His brother disciples seek him out to share the good news that they have seen the risen Lord. 
And in his response, Thomas not only dismisses their testimony, he takes a further step. He has the audacity to place an ultimatum on God, on Jesus. Notice the forcefulness of his response and the way it escalates here. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, so sense of sight, and place a finger into the mark of the nails, sense of touch with one finger, and place my hand into his side, sense of touch with an entire hand, I will never believe. That's a double negative there in the Greek, which works like an exclamation point on never. I will never believe, Thomas says. This is classic spiritual bargaining. Placing conditions on God Almighty that must be met before we'll agree to place our faith in Him or give our life over to Him. One commentator writes, no skepticism could be more thoroughgoing than this. Nobody else in the entire New Testament makes demands like these before believing. Maybe no one else in the New Testament does, but I don't think this is so foreign to our own experiences, is it? God, if you would just answer this prayer, then I'll devote myself to you. God, if you'll just help me out of this pickle that I'm in, then I'll finally surrender that area of my life to you that I've been holding back. Rather than submitting ourselves to what God says in Isaiah, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts, declares the Lord. Instead of that, we put God on trial. We place the onus on him to acquit himself of our doubts by satisfying our conditions on our terms. Friends, doubt in and of itself is natural, and it's not an altogether bad thing. I think in many ways, doubt is the flip side of the coin of our faith. And when we grapple with it earnestly, it can actually lead us to a more resilient faith and to a deeper joy. God admires intellectual honesty, and he's big enough to handle our good faith questions. The crucial thing is that it's all about our posture. The right posture towards doubt is the one provided by Asaph. Lord, here are my doubts. I'm voicing them to you honestly in prayer, but now I'm taking them to the sanctuary, to your people, to seek help. The right posture towards doubt is provided by the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark's gospel. Lord, I believe. No conditions. Now help my unbelief. That is an honest plea and an honest prayer that models for us something that glorifies God when we're struggling with our doubts. So we've looked at Thomas's doubt and what we might learn from it about our own doubt, and now we're gonna to turn to Thomas's faith to see what it teaches us about the nature of true and authentic faith. Thomas remains a skeptic of the res resurrection, but he does take the step of rejoining the apostles for their gathering the next Sunday when something incredible happens. Look at verse 26 in the passage. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Here Thomas encounters the risen Lord in the flesh and he is confronted with overwhelming evidence that his doubt was an error and that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. And this highlights the first point I wanna draw from the passage about the nature of true faith. And it's this, faith in the resurrection is sound. It can hold up to even the most withering scrutiny and skepticism. We can relate to Thomas's skepticism here, can't we? It is very difficult to believe, in all cases except for one, that somebody who has been crucified and sealed in a tomb could rise from the dead to new life. I work in college ministry, as John mentioned, with college students, and every semester, I encounter students who that is the stumbling block for them, for the Christian faith. 
is the miracle of the resurrection and the plausibility of it. But what I want to say this morning is that faith in the resurrection is not an anti-intellectual plunge. It is not a turn-off-your-brain move that runs contrary to all evidence and reason. If you can get past the stumbling block of miracles, admitting that a supernatural God who created the whole world can act within that world, then there are a number of compelling factors that mount a preponderance of evidence in support of the resurrection. I want to share just a couple of these with you this morning. And these are ones that regularly come up in conversations with students. First, the testimony of the women. All four Gospels explicitly and unabashedly record that the first people to encounter and testify to the resurrected Jesus were women. Now, why is that significant? Why is that noteworthy? Because in this cultural context, women simply were not accepted as credible witnesses. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian writing shortly after the time of Jesus, sums up the standard view of the day. He writes, from women let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and boldness of their sex. Now we may cringe at that sentiment today, but that was the view of the time. And here's why that's important. It shows that the gospel accounts of the resurrections are not fables or legendary in their character. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts this well. He says, it will not do to have the gospel authors making up a would-be apologetic legend about an empty tomb and having women to be the ones to find it. Nobody inventing stories after 20 years, let alone 30 or 40, would have done it that way. The only reason why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would list the women as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection is because they felt constrained by the truth. They had to report what actually happened. But some of my students will say, isn't it true that the Gospels are written 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death? So even if the women as eyewitnesses is a compelling point, that's still an uncomfortably long gap before the events that took place, whatever they were on that Sunday, and the recording of those events. Let's grant that point for the sake of argument. And then let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, a letter written by the Apostle Paul much earlier, only 20 to 25 years after Jesus' death. In chapter 15, Paul writes, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now the, the important thing about that, those passages, is that Paul didn't come up with this language himself. He tells us that he received this language. And scholars believe this was a sort of creed that was developed among the earliest Christians and that was passed along to Paul when he first was converted and then met with the other apostles to investigate the origins of the faith. New Testament scholar James Dunn, who is not a very conservative Christian, writes of this, this tradition, that passage from 1 Corinthians 15, we can be entirely confident was formulated as a tradition within months of Jesus' death. The resurrection was not first written down and recorded 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death. It was attested within months of Jesus' death. Furthermore, this creed goes on to name drop its sources. Jesus appeared to Cephas, to the 12, to James, to all the apostles, and to more than 500, most of whom are still alive. In other words, Paul is saying here, go find them. Here's their names, here's my eyewitnesses, go ask them. Go receive their testimony. This is not the stuff of fable and legend, this is the stuff of early eyewitness testimony and reporting. These are just two among dozens of compelling strands of evidence that support the resurrection. Why did hundreds of devoutly monotheistic Jews suddenly begin worshiping Jesus as God, which they previously would have seen as the height of blasphemy? 
Why did these Jews override the Torah and reconsecrate Sunday, the day of the resurrection, as the day of worship, instead of Saturday, the Jewish Shabbat? You see, the resurrection, it's a one-time historical event. It's not scientifically demonstrable, like a repeated experiment in a lab. You can't prove it like you can a mathematical theorem. I don't think I can prove the resurrection. But there are dozens and dozens of compelling factors that considered together mount an incredibly sound case for the historical reality that Jesus walked out of the tomb that morning. Thomas's doubt yielded to the undeniability of the resurrection. He encountered the risen Lord face to face. And we, 2,000 years later, we're living well after Jesus' ascension, so we don't have access in the same way to the flesh of Jesus, but we do have access to a mound of compelling evidence to believe in the resurrection. And so if you relate to Thomas in his skepticism, I encourage you, go investigate it. Go, go read on this and see if you find the arguments compelling and see if you have the kind of encounter that Thomas did. The second thing that Thomas teaches us about true faith, and this is our final point this morning, is the form of true faith. Thomas's ultimate faith serves as a template, I think, for our faith. There is some great irony in the fact that Thomas is universally known by the nickname Doubting Thomas, as if that was his static identity fossilized for all time. When you zoom out on John's gospel as a whole and see how the whole gospel works, uh, Thomas plays a very important role. You see, the gospel, it begins with a bang, the famous prologue that reveals to us the readers right off the bat who Jesus is. He is the eternal word who was with God and who was God. All things were made through him, and yet he took on flesh to dwell among us, to give, give us the right to become children of God. 18 verses into John's gospel, you, the reader, know who Jesus is, you know his identity. But as you read on, for the next 20 chapters, we search in vain for any character who realizes who Jesus is. The disciples are so spiritually clay-footed, they just don't get it. They're constantly taking one step forward and two step backwards in coming to terms with who this man is. As the gospel is drawing to a close, we're left to wonder, will anyone grasp the totality of who Jesus is? Will any of these characters arrive at the truths that are expressed in the prologue? And that's where Thomas comes in. Thomas does. Thomas encounters the risen Lord Jesus, and then he exclaims in verse 28, my Lord and my God. That, my Lord and my God, that is the most full-hearted confession of faith found anywhere in the whole gospel of John. And it's on the lips of the man we call Doubting Thomas. Now, why is that phrase so significant, my Lord and my God? I think it's significant because I think it serves as a template for us today of what true faith looks like. To know Jesus in his fullness, we have to know him both as Lord and God. Taking them in reverse order, my God. Jesus is not, contrary to our, many of our cultural expectations, he is not simply a supreme moral teacher who came to reveal to humanity through his teachings a better way of life. The Gospel of John will have none of this. Authentic faith is not simply heeding the teachings of Jesus as moral scripts for our lives. Authentic faith is falling on your face in worship of Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and who is and who is to come. He is God indeed, and for true faith, we need to know him as such. Second, my Lord. This word means king, sovereign. And true faith involves not only mentally acknowledging Jesus as king, it means enthroning him over your life. There's an emphasis there on my, my Lord. He is Lord of my life. 
He is not the co-pilot of my life. He is not my daily inspiration that enriches my life. He is the Lord of my life, and he is ruling as a gracious and good king. Scripture doesn't tell us about the remaining course of Thomas's life. Um, there's not much in Acts about it. But extra-biblical accounts tell us that Thomas carried the gospel beyond the bounds of the Roman Empire to India, where he established a Christian community that is still in existence today. And he was ultimately martyred for Christ. So Thomas began life as a doubter, but he died as a saint and as a hero of the faith. And to close this morning, I want to close by highlighting the famous words of an Easter hymn that we love to sing this time of year that have an indirect reference to Thomas. And that hymn is crown him with many crowns. We, we know this hymn, we love it. And it brings together Thomas's encounter with the Lord and the proper response to that in faith. The lyrics go, crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands his side, rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. May Christ be that in our lives as we go forward today. Let me pray for us. God, would you encounter us in our doubts, in our fears, in our spiritual timidity this morning. May our souls awake and sing of him who died for us. And may we, may we hail your son, Jesus, as our matchless king through all eternity as he so richly deserves. Amen.